Hey, Scott Walker here on our podcast, You Can't Recall Courage. Boy, this week, it's a real honor. I've got a, a longtime friend of mine, the 74th governor of the great state of North Carolina, Pat McCrory, is on with us. And uh, in addition to having served with me as governor, he is currently uh, on uh, every weekday morning, he's on Newstalk 1110 and 99.3 WBT, uh, Charlotte's Newstalk station. And I hope... Uh, maybe we'll even hear a little bit more about the prospects here, but I hope he'll be a candidate uh, for uh, for the United States Senate in 2022. Pat, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to talk to my old friend, Scott Walker, who I think uh, I'm going to brag on you a little bit. And You were the best governor I ever watched, and, and uh, Wisconsin was lucky to have you. Well, I appreciate so I'm, that. I'm proud of both you and your son, Matt, too. Yeah, Matt, uh, who helps us out with these podcasts, uh, uh, obviously worked uh, four years ago was he loved it down there. We were worried we aren't where we weren't ever going to get him back because he loved being in North Carolina and, and loved the people. Most of all, loved working for you. That's for sure. Well, my, my team loved Matt and uh, he had a lot of friends down here. You know, what was amazing about our relationship, Scott, and why I followed you so much. And you might not realize this, but I think you were the test case of how the left wing of the Democratic Party was going to challenge uh, political leaders from the Republican Party. Wisconsin was the test case of all the states, and it then came to Indiana uh, with uh, now Vice President Pence, and then it went to North Carolina, and now it's going to uh, Trump. The test case of protesters, the test case of bias in the media, the test case of saying anything and doing anything to get an incumbent out of office. And uh, you were the role model on, I thought, how to handle it. And uh, I wish I would have handled it as well as you did down here in North Carolina. But I thank you for it. And, and sadly, some of the strategy that the left does use is working at this point in time. Well, you're right. We've seen it. I remember when you were running for reelection, you guys had created in the state uh, something like 300,000 new jobs. And uh, we're really humming. But the, the left always finds ways to get the media which is often in at least many parts of the media in the bag with them uh, to really ignore uh, the results. And we were seeing that clearly uh, before the coronavirus hit, we were seeing uh, an absolute meltdown in the media because they knew that the policies that this president and his administration had been involved with were a big part of the reason why we had a booming economy. Now we're going to need to get back to that again. And certainly this president helped turn things around, but, but again, you, you know something about turning things around because in 2012, you came in and made some big, bold changes working with your legislature. And uh, four years later, the state was dramatically better uh, than it was prior to your service. Well, what was interesting that time is that we had a $2.2 billion debt in our unemployment compensation. We were bankrupt regarding paying unemployment coming out of the recession of uh, 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12. <clears throat> and we had the fourth highest or fifth highest unemployment compensation in the country and we were bankrupting the system and plus we had people not going back to work because the unemployment was paying more than entry-level jobs and so one of the controversial things i did which i thought was common sense was we needed to solve this gap and one way we did it was lower the unemployment compensation to what tennessee virginia and uh, south carolina were paying and next thing I knew, three months later, everyone was returning back to work and getting off unemployment. And uh, now we have a $2 billion surplus 
that I'm afraid we're going to just go through in a very short period of time. And, and we're also probably going to have people when this economy rebounds and it will maybe stay on unemployment a little longer than they need uh, because the compensation so high coming both, both from the federal and state government. So I'm afraid we're, we're not learning from the mistakes of the 2010-11 recession. Well, that you raise a great point because we did the same thing. We had a huge deficit uh, in the uh, unemployment insurance, uh, unemployment compensation fund. <clears throat> Backfilled that in and actually did so well that we, for a couple of years, gave small business owners a break in terms of the tax they had to pay in that system. And and uh, that was one of those things. Again, the media didn't understand it, but it was a huge benefit uh, for small businesses and other employers. I, too, in fact, it's something I've been talking to our friend Lindsey Graham about because he and Tim Scott and Ben Sass raised mm-hmm. this uh, weeks and weeks ago when the CARES Act was going through. A lot of good things in there. Certainly, I think the Paycheck Protection Plan made sense to, to make sure our small businesses didn't fall apart and, and most importantly, to make sure that they kept workers on the payroll. But you hit the nail on the head. I, I think a big, big problem the federal government has created in their rush to help people out. And I'm all for helping people out, but... Uh, particularly since the government's the one that shut these businesses down and put these workers out of business in effect. But I'm worried that if you've got somebody making $10 an hour in the past, they would have been making $400 a week. Now you add not only what they get, whether it's in North Carolina, Wisconsin, or anywhere else, on average, they're making about half of that under traditional unemployment from the state. But you add in the $600 per week they get from the federal government in this so-called enhanced unemployment benefit, uh, they're de facto making about twice on unemployment what they would make back in the in the workforce. It's hard to imagine a lot of these workers wanting to come back, even if their their small business opens up again, at least for the next few months. Big, big problem. I know you've talked about that. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with the federal government and what they're doing. And of course, the states are taking it. But the unemployment's usually been the responsibility of the states. And, um, yeah, I think in a couple of weeks when retailers try to start rehiring people, they're going to go, I'd appreciate you not calling me. I'd like to stay on this unemployment making $22, $23 an hour. Um, you know, that's going to be tough to compete again, especially in the retail side and even the manufacturing side of uh, much work. In fact, when I did this back in 2013, in my third month in office, that's when my protesters started. I think you shipped some up from Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, you and I down talked North about Carolina, that. But, had some of the same But signs. I had tens of thousands of protesters called Moral Mondays. And it started because I needed to fix the unemployment insurance program. And again, I'm, I'm glad I did it today because the, the governor who defeated me is benefiting from a money that's available to pay unemployment without having to tax, further tax the employers. Yeah, that is the irony of both of our situations, that we uh, we turn the state around, put the state back in, in good footing, not only on unemployment, uh, but on, on uh, surpluses and economy, and, and they're going to benefit from that. But, but more important than them individually, it's, it's the people of our respective states who will benefit and, and hopefully realize uh, that uh, we put them in a, in a much, much better spot. Speaking of the federal government, though, I know you've talked about this. It's not even just this problem, which I think directly affects whether the economy uh, opens again, because the, uh, no matter what date any given governor picks to reopen, 
if the market's not ready, and by this I mean if, if employees aren't ready to come back and if customers aren't ready to come back in, particularly at retail spots, we're in real trouble. But the other big trouble is the federal government it is just spending out of control. We, we, uh, I remember being down last year in North Carolina talking about the, the debt and the need for a balanced budget amendment. I was worried back then that the debt here in the nation this year would be about just over 23 trillion in five years from now, 30 trillion. We're looking at a debt by the end of this year that will be $30 trillion and growing. And that means every dollar the federal government's borrowing is just going to pay off interest. I, I know you've been talking about that on air. That's a huge, uh, huge problem. You and I are on the same uh, wavelength. Um, I'm, my Republican legislature is still in the majority here, and the Democratic governor are teaming up to spend all that federal money. Frankly, federal money that we don't have, it's a credit card, on debt incurred by the state of North Carolina on things that, frankly, were happening two years ago prior to this virus. Um, you know, they're replenishing some transportation funds, which are, frankly, the state's responsibility. And, you know, we're all the same taxpayers, whether it be city, county or state and or federal. And we're kind of playing a little bit of a shell game. And I think there's a little CYA involved in this. We're all covering each other's back. The politicians are. And uh, it's going to cause some long term damage to the next generation. I'm worried about it. Well, exactly. And, and I would even add to that. Not only is it a problem for the, you know, the generation, the young generation that's with us, not even yet to be born, but, but with us in terms of the debt of the federal government, which, again, is just out of control. If we had a family member, a friend, a small business owner we knew who was who was so in debt that every penny they borrowed was just paying interest, we'd have some sort of an intervention. But beyond that, the other worry that, that I think is very likely to happen, you experienced it in your state, I had to deal with it in my state, and that is this rush to send federal dollars. Now, they've, they've gotten a good chunk of that for individuals, but they're talking about, Pelosi and others are talking about sending uh, billions, if not trillions, to state and local governments uh, to bail places like Illinois, uh, which has the worst funded pension system in the country and problems long before this, or New York State that has a $6 billion deficit uh, in their Medicaid uh, budget. They're talking about bailing these state and local governments out. Well, they remember, they did this. Uh, you know it, but I, I think our listeners need to remember that they tried to do this uh, with Barack Obama and Joe Biden uh, in 2009 and 2010, and a whole bunch of us, uh, not to politically uh, solely part, make this partisan, but Republican governors had to step up and clean up the mess because the federal funding eventually goes away and state and local governments are left holding the bag. Uh, you've hit it nail on the head. And you know one-time money from the federal government, it can be very dangerous, especially if you put it into your operating budget because all you're doing is delaying the pain that you're going to have to incur to a future governor. And uh, that's something I refuse to do as governor. And that one-time money from the federal government, which is fake money anyway, it's pseudo money, it's credit card money, is um, it needs to be discussed more. I think McConnell, I'm not sure I agree with him saying states all declare bankruptcy, but I'm glad McConnell brought up these pension programs. I, I commend him for you know, calling out the pension programs of every state, even North Carolina is supposed to be one of the good states and and their pension programs, $20 billion that has to be 
propped up every year. And that's one of the better ones. <laughs> and, uh, and I think you're right. The state of Illinois is, uh, if they use this federal money to bail out their pension program, where they're allowing people to retire at age 40 or 45 with full pensions, we are bankrupting the next generation with annuities that can't be fulfilled. Well, and you add to that, I mean, Illinois is like the poster child of why we shouldn't yeah. bail out any state or local government, uh, not just because the debt and encourage future generations for the federal government, but my goodness, uh, they're not even, they have set for the beginning of July, massive pay increases for state employees. And the new governor there the other day was asked about this, and he said he wasn't even considering um, pulling back on those uh, in any way, trying to oh. figure out how to pull back on those pay increases when I mean, that's just a slap in the face to all the small business owners and to all the workers out there who have been laid off or who are taking a pay cut just to be able to stay employed during this crisis and probably will be faced with these sort of choices over the next year or so when the state government and local governments can't even find a way to, to make adjustments with so-called non-essential employees. And they're taking pay increases in Illinois coming up this summer. It just shows you why people are so frustrated. I, I, I cannot believe that is shocking. And what's shocking to me is, frankly, as you know, most private businesses right now, all the employees for those that are open are taking pay cuts. Sadly, even doctors are taking pay cuts right now, emergency room doctors, which is inexcusable in one regard, especially. But when you have stay-at-home government workers at the city, county, and state level not having any reduction, say, even in a 401k match, Without, when they know the budget directors of city, counties, and states know that their revenue is going to be down 20, 30, 40% with hotel motel tax, with sales tax, with gas tax. And they ought to be making the moves now that are slight moves. I'll, I'll give an example for the radio show I do. I took a 15% pay cut. I had no problem doing that whatsoever. As, Well, that's exactly right. I think we lost our, our connection with uh, We with got that. it. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah, go. Yeah, you were saying you took a pay cut from the uh, the radio station. We did the same thing I, with a couple of the, uh, the groups I work with, a couple of the businesses. Uh, I took a, a pay reduction be, in, in the contracts I had because they said the, the alternative was they were trying to avoid layoffs. And I said, like you did, of course. Of course, we're going to help out in the time like this. That's why the only thing I disagreed with Mitch McConnell on, I think he was right to push back about not uh, the federal government not bailing out state and local governments. The only thing I would disagree with, and I think you alluded to this, was uh, the phrase uh, they can declare bankruptcy. Right. My view right. is, no, they can do what, what we're talking about. They can do what businesses are doing, which is people taking pay cuts and, and making changes and doing things to get by because that's what families and businesses are doing all across America. It's only right that government should consider doing the same things. You know, I'm sitting in front of us. Uh, I'm in a, sitting in a parking lot in front of a store in Charlotte. And I'm looking at two vacant shops, but one has a sign grand opening and yet it's not opening. <laughs> you know, that tells it all, right? It there. tells it all right there. And then the poor owners that just opened the shop and then had to close and, and we do have some inconsistencies. I don't know if it's true in Wisconsin or not, but here in North Carolina, what we call essential businesses, uh, there's a little bit of hypocrisy in what we call essential businesses, what government calls essential businesses and what the private sector calls essential businesses. For example, our ABC stores, our liquor stores are open. 
and yet small retail clothing outlets are closed. Walmart's open, and yet other similar areas that sell equipment and things are not allowed to be open. We've got a lot of inconsistencies in government declaring what's essential and what is not essential, and that is a big issue I have right now, and I think that's coming to the forefront shortly on, you know, if it's your job, it's essential. <laughs> well, exactly right. And this is one of those where I look at it and said, yeah, I'm concerned about the coronavirus long after we reopen. We're going to have to continue to be vigilant. Absolutely. Of some of our health measures. But but we've got to be able to not only reopen the economy and, and use the same things we're doing at essential. You know, if I can go to the grocery store or I can go to the pharmacy or if I'm at a manufacturer that's deemed a, a essential, why can't I use those same practices to reopen the so-called non-essential ones? But the other big problem that we saw, particularly in Michigan, I think was probably the worst case wow. scenario, but we've seen it elsewhere, is the encroachment on civil liberties. This idea that you mentioned, why is one essential and one not? I'd say, why can you go to a, one store and get a lottery ticket or, or sadly go somewhere and get an abortion, but you can't buy seeds to plant a garden to grow food for your family? at a store you're already in. It just showed how absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we've seen far too many examples at the state, and I would dare say at the local level, uh, where, where people are out of control. So it's, uh, uh, it really is a challenge. Well, I, I, again, we're, uh, this is Scott Walker on our uh, podcast, You Can't Recall Courage. We're so glad you joined us. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Boy, it's great uh, to be back. Thank you for joining us on You Can't Recall Courage, our podcast. I'm on with the my good friend, the 74th governor of the great state of North Carolina, Pat McCrory. Uh, Pat, thanks so much for being with us. Tell us, North Carolina this year, what's well, always a tough battle state. I know I've been down there campaigning with you before, back in 12 and, and four years ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, in 2020, you guys are like the epicenter of everything. The, the National Convention for Republicans is there. You've got probably one of the top tier. Well, not probably. You have one of the top tier U.S. Senate races with Tom Tillis up. Uh, you've got a top uh, race for governor with, with Roy Cope, Cooper being vulnerable. You've got, uh, because of Eric Holder and the chaos they've done in the courts in North Carolina, like they're doing elsewhere, you, you've got redrawn boundaries. So you've got a couple of key house seats that are up. You've got a legislative battle. You've got just about everything happening all at one time in one place. And of course, the presidential election, which people forget, even though the president carried North Carolina uh, there before in 2008, Barack Obama uh, carried, uh, carried your state as well. So tell us a little bit, you know, as well as anybody between your time uh, running and serving as governor and, and now uh, being, I think you got your thumb on the pulse, uh, being on the radio every day. What's going to happen in those races in North Carolina? It's a purple state. It's going to be a dead heat with millions upon millions of dollars spent in North Carolina. First of all, at the presidential level, if if Trump, if President Trump loses North Carolina, he he will lose the nation. Um, there's no doubt about it. So the Democrats are going to put a lot of money at the national ticket into North Carolina. They've got a very powerful machine. They've got the protesters very similar to Wisconsin. They've got the media very similar to Wisconsin behind uh, Biden and behind the Democratic governor and behind the Democratic Senate race. So the media is against uh, the Republicans uh, getting elected here in the state. The, uh, very similar dynamics. Uh, Charlotte, Durham, Raleigh, uh, Asheville, Wilmington have all gone blue. 
the rural areas that used to be conservative Democrat have all reversed back to the Republican Party. So the a disadvantage for the Republicans is the urban areas are growing. Everyone's moving to North Carolina, especially from New York and Ohio and a few other states. So you've got so many new people here that tend to be conservative, but they still vote Democrat. And it's the oddest dynamic. They left New York to leave taxes, but they come here and go, gosh, the taxes are great. Maybe I can afford a little more here. Um, and they tend to be more socially liberal. So we're, we're in trouble. Um, Tillis is in for a very tight race. His polls do not look great right now. I'm doing everything I can to support him. Cooper, because of this um, uh, emergency virus, uh, he's probably in good shape, and the money's going toward Cooper nationally because of social issues. And the president, I think, will win North Carolina still, but it's going to be a very, very tight call. You know, I was mayor of Charlotte for 14 years, and now I don't think I could elect, get elected dog catcher of Charlotte <laughs> because it's gone so far blue. Um, probably similar to, to Milwaukee. I'd be curious. You're, exactly. you, were, you were the top guy in Milwaukee County. Uh, is it similar dynamics there? Oh, there's just no doubt about it. You see uh, big, big numbers, not only in Milwaukee, similar to Charlotte, but particularly you talked about Raleigh and that whole triangle there, uh, that's similar to Madison. It, it is Bernie Sanders uh, haven. In fact, they had a spring election on April 7th and uh, uh, included in that was the presidential primary, but also all these races, uh, judicial races and, and local elections. And the Democrats get it. They, Bernie Sanders didn't drop out and endorse Joe Biden until after the April 7th election in Wisconsin. And the simple reason for it, obviously he was already done, was that they wanted people to turn out to vote for Bernie and to vote for Biden to try and elect a liberal to the Supreme Court. So they get this deal. They understand exactly what they're doing, just like they went after you on ridiculous issues that had little or nothing to do with being governor. Uh, But they do it to rally voters in some of those more radicalized and i and i assume in wisconsin the liberal left wing owns the universities absolutely yeah they just are they are just out of control there well in madison is that's why for us it was the epitome of the spot for the protest back in 2011 yeah the university a few blocks from the capitol you've got uh all the state employees that live and work around madison and then as i say because the the Madison University of Wisconsin at Madison was the kind of the one of the focal points for uh, the all the protests in the late 60s and the 70s. And so you got all these leftover hippies uh, that still live. Uh, in, in fact, one of them at the time was the mayor, a guy that had been arrested yeah. for protests back in the University of Wisconsin was literally the mayor of Madison. So. That's, a, I think, a similar trend we see around the country in purple states. where The, the eclectic left, so, the Grateful yeah. Dead voter, as I call them, yeah. <laughs> has become uh, very, very powerful. And they're, they've become wealthy. They give a lot of money, too. A lot of the Grateful Dead voters, uh, I call them as kind of a joke, uh, you know, they're driving BMWs and Mercedes while, you know, talking about climate change. So they're trying to have the best of both worlds. And uh, the nonprofits have also become very, very powerful in politics. They they have tens of millions of dollars that they're giving out politically to lobbyists and other causes. And they also get on TV and TV commercials. So universities and non so-called nonprofits and uh, 
and government workers are have become a very, very powerful base for the Democratic Party. Yeah, they're very sophisticated. So it sounds like it's going to be a tough battle. President uh, right now, you still think can win, which is key to him winning reelection along with Mike Pence. Uh, but a tough race for the Senate, tough race for governor, just tough races in general. Speaking of tough races, but important races, uh, boy, obviously the focus is on 2020 and, and rightfully should be. But, but two years later, uh, there's likely to be an open seat in the United States Senate uh, in, in, uh, in your fine state. And I know you've talked not only about state issues, but a lot about uh, the problems in Washington and how they could benefit from an executive, someone who's not only got government experience, but private sector experience. Is that something you'd consider? Again, I know it's it's a little premature before the 2020 election, but uh, but but it seems like you'd be a great candidate and you'd be somebody like with joining with people like Rick Scott, and a few other governors who are trying to shake things up there. Well, I, I, I'm definitely considering it. I'm, I'm shocked that my numbers are actually very strong in North Carolina. You know, you figured after you lose a, an election being the incumbent, you know, you just go off to the pasture. But the longer I stay out, my numbers are coming back uh, because, you know, they branded me and, you know, tens of millions of dollars of commercials doing a false brand of me, which was very, very effective. I'm not going to play the victim card, but uh, my numbers look very good in North Carolina. And I've talked to the appropriate people in D.C. and they said you definitely ought to consider it. But I'll look after the November election. You know, I, I'm, I like you, are trying to figure out what is her purpose? What is her public calling? And uh, and also, can our family w- be willing to withstand the right. the uh, public abuse that we will get if we if you or I ever decide to run for public office again? And of course, you saw it at the presidential level, but no one has seen it like Scott Walker. Uh, you know, when you had three elections in a matter of three years, uh, you're you're our hero. Uh, people in your state have no idea what other governors think of you and and the admiration we have for you and what you went through and your family by the way and uh so that's that's part of the issue is also family but you know i hopefully my career is not over in public service and but we'll find out well i'm enjoying the media you know i'm doing meet the press about every two months and uh trying to bring a conservative reasonable voice to uh, a show like that and to other shows including my radio show. And, and I'm, I'm liking that opportunity. Well, I love joining you when we were down there on the radio show. You have a, a great time, you, great show. Got a super audience out there. I really appreciate when you're on Meet the Press because Lord knows they could use some sanity, a little bit of common sense, conservative viewpoints uh, from someone who knows. I yeah, mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad the they still people... invite me. And, you know, it's usually three <laughs> on one. And they catch a lot of well, heat. What's ironic, Meet the Press catches a lot of heat from all the left-wing groups. How dare you put Pat McCrory on Meet the Press? Because the the left doesn't want to hear a diverse voice right now. So I'm going to take advantage of uh, being given that diverse voice uh, to express a different viewpoint of someone who's you know been in the private sector, been a mayor, been a governor, and uh, maybe that voice would be worthy. But the best job in the world is governor. Wouldn't you agree? There's no doubt about it. You wake up every day and you find out ways to help people by getting the government off their back and making their lives better. And uh, there's no other place you can do that kind of work. But having said that, I think the Senate, the United States Senate, could certainly benefit from having more governors there because governors get things done. 
and it'd be nice to have people there who are impatient with the federal government. Yeah, I think uh, Rick Scott's a good role model for both of us and a good friend of both of ours. And I'm proud of the job that he's doing representing Florida in D.C. And uh, he's got a great relationship with the president and with fellow senators. And and he's impatient, too. And and I think we need more impatience in D.C., I agree with that. I know over the years talking to Ron Johnson, who wasn't a governor, but was the CEO of a plastics company, the only accountant in the U.S. Senate and a manufacturer. He shared that same frustration, still shares that same frustration. It'd be nice to have a, a few more voices. So I'll add my uh, my voice, my name to the uh, the draft Pat uh, <laughs> campaign here. And uh, obviously we'll, we'll focus more on that once uh, the 2020 elections are done. And, and hopefully the president and Tillis and others have been elected uh, so we can keep uh, not only our states, but our country moving well, forward. Well, God, I say the same to you. I hope your voice continues sometime in the future for some public service. And, uh, you know, I'm there to help in any way because we need good, honest and ethical people like yourself. Um, and- well, back, back at you. We we uh, we enjoy I enjoyed serving with you as governor. I enjoy listening to you and hearing what you're doing uh, on the radio and on, and on Sundays when you when you're on the panel there. And uh, I'm looking forward to your future as well. So, ladies and gentlemen, big round of applause. Thanks so much for uh, Pat McCrory joining us, the 74th governor of the great state of, of uh, North Carolina. And maybe. Uh, and I might add, my uh, my parents were, my, my family's from Wisconsin. My, yeah. my mom went to Washington High. My dad went to Boys Tech there in Milwaukee. And uh, my granddad was a physics teacher. My grandmother was a music teacher right there in Milwaukee. So I have Milwaukee blood in me. My sister was born in Wisconsin. So uh, I've just migrated to the South, but uh, Wisconsin's always in my heart. I never got to live there, but my wonderful two grandmothers were both uh, a lot of fond memories of the zoo and, and downtown and the Michigan uh, beaches. I loved it greatly. The Lake Michigan. Well, it's a great beaches. spot, great place on a great lake and uh, little known trivia for anyone who loves the classic movie, Willy Wonka. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the actor who played Willy Wonka, uh, Gene Wilder. I know went to Washington High School. Washington High School. In fact, my my aunt acted with him. Oh, and wow. my aunt, my same aunt Frances, uh, Frances McCrory was her name. Sadly, she has passed, but she acted with uh, uh, George C. Scott too. Oh, so wow. they were both very active in drama in uh, both Wisconsin and in uh, New York later on. So they were all friends. Well, that's small world, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. Well, you've been great to give us so much time here today. We appreciate it very much. And again, I encourage folks to to listen to Pat in Charlotte as well as watch him on Meet the Press. And uh, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Take care, Scott. Give my best to Matt and the entire family. Will do. Be well. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, keep fighting for freedom.